Well, good evening, everyone. I, uh, I'm excited to uh, finish up our long series in the book of Philemon. We started it last week. Uh, and uh, it's, been, it's been such a challenge for me as I've been processing it, um, just as the Spirit of God has been revealing areas in my life where I have been not living um, in the beautiful implications of the gospel, the difficult implications of the gospel. And tonight, we're going to be talking about one that, to be honest, is weighty. Um, it's costly. Um, you're not, you might not like it a lot. I know I don't. Um, but it is good news. So as we go into tonight, I'm going to start with, um, with a story that's, uh, that, 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 um, that packs quite a punch. So I'm going to share this story with you. It is um, written um, by a sister in the family of God, um, an incredible woman who has since passed. Her name is Corey Tin Boone. Um, some of you might be familiar with her and her witness. Uh, in one of her books, she writes this story. So I'm going to, um, I, I tried to paraphrase down the story to make it shorter, um, but her words are just way too beautiful and powerful um, for me to do anything other than just simply read it. So I will be reading it right now. So it was... It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt cat hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was a truth they needed to hear in that bitter, bombed out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of clothes and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. See, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. I mean, how can you remember one prisoner of among thousands of women? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors. and My blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it. From your lips for outline, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. 
I mean, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Imagine being in that moment. Imagine being in that moment. What would you do? What would you say? Would you, would you say what you want to say? Would you say what you need to say? What you should say? What you'd like to say? Would you say nothing at all? I think about forgiveness in my life and, and when I have struggled to forgive, when I still struggle to forgive, knowing how do I release this debt? How can you forgive the unforgivable? How can you reconcile with the irreconcilable? This is what we're walking into tonight. That's our question. Tonight, we close our brief series in the book of Philemon. And, we, and last week, I mentioned that we were going to do this book in a different way than normal, where we're going to sit and read it from two different perspectives. So last week, we read it from the perspective of Philemon, the guy who the book is named after. He is the host of a particular house church in which this letter is being written to. He is a man who has demonstrated much love for God and love for people. He is a man who Paul clearly thinks very highly of, yet he is also a man who is the owner of Onesimus, the runaway slave who we're going to get to know a lot more today as we sit on his cushion listening to this letter. But last week, we discovered the unrelenting call of the gospel leads us into deeper waters. Like Philemon, we are never done being challenged by the story of the gospel. We just become more aware of new spaces in which we need to grow in and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Now this week, though, we sit on the cushion of Onesimus, hearing it from the perspective, not of the master, but of the bondservant, of the slave. How do you listen to this message then? So let's go ahead and open up um, our Bibles to Philippians, uh, or I'm sorry, Philemon. Um, it's a really short book. If you happen to have one of these when you were coming in or you brought one with you, um, I believe it's like page 20 something. 20, yeah, 20. Um, so let's go ahead and start. Verse three. Verse three gives us the tone of this letter. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very common greeting that Paul uses in many of his letters. Now, it's very common, but it's not there because it's just like a formal, formal thing that Paul always just writes. It's because it's true. Grace and peace. These are two things that costed Jesus everything. They are two things that none of us deserve, grace and peace. And they are two things that Paul hopes that every recipient of his letter would receive, grace and peace. So peace is the tone, but not cheap peace, but costly peace. The peace that Jesus hung upon the cross to bring into the world. The true shalom of God made manifest in our reality of chaos. So then Paul, after that, begins to go into the letter, not by condemning 
Philemon, but or calling him like the absolute worst. Instead, he actually begins to honor him in honoring his commitment to faithful gospel ministry. He, his goal, though, is his goal is not to tear Philemon down, but he also is not, has no intention of leaving Philemon unchallenged by this letter, which is where we get at into verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Onesimus has become Paul's child in the faith. So a little bit about what we covered last week was Onesimus, he ran away from Colossae where this letter is being read to, um, and his master, a guy named Philemon, and he had escaped. Somehow he made his way to Rome where Paul was in imprisonment. Now, when he did that, we don't know the circumstances that led him across Paul's path, whether it was just like some incredible movement of God's sovereignty in making that happen or whether, Phile- or whether Onesimus actually sought out Paul. But however it happened, they ended up together. And in that space, he ended up coming to faith in Jesus and becoming a disciple of Paul. So hence the language where Paul is saying that he is my son, that that language that he is using is always used when he is talking about a disciple who he has spent a great deal of time with. So imagine being mentored by Paul the Apostle. Like, think about that. This is a guy who would write the majority of the New Testament of the Bible. And you are going to be able to spend unfiltered access time with him. In fact, so much so that he would call you his kid. Like, that is pretty crazy, right? Think about what he would have learned from Paul what he would have learned about following the way of Jesus, how to live it out, that he would have learned so many lessons and chief among them would have been the lesson that Jesus distills all the law into, right? To love the Lord your God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. See, every, every law, everything that we can do is meant to be a contextualization of that law, of loving God and loving people. So we'd have learned this stuff from Paul. He would have learned from Paul that Jesus's call leads you into actually desiring to demonstrate love for one another. Remember what Jesus said? That they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. He would have learned from Paul the importance of true peace, costly peace in the family of God. It's a reoccurring theme in almost every one of Paul's letters, always striving for unity and peace within the family of God. But not like this, like, let's just avoid the elephant in the room. We're not gonna have that conversation. Ah, run away. Like that kind of thing that like you and I might default to and not the version where I'm just gonna steamroll you into agreeing with me. But instead, we're going to pursue peace. We're gonna make peace happen, even though it's gonna be costly, even though it's gonna be really frustrating, even it's gonna, going to lead to a lot of late night conversations. This is the kind of peace that Paul constantly preached because it's the kind of peace that Jesus died to secure. So we'd have learned from Paul who considered himself to be the chief of all sinners. See, Paul, he might be this hero in the faith now, but he was a persecutor of the early church. Talk about reconciling with the irreconcilable, right? But yet when he met the risen Jesus, everything transformed in him and he was able to be received back into this family now as a son, as a brother in the family of God. So Paul knew firsthand the impact of the gospel with forgiveness and reconciliation. 
he would have learned from Paul how Jesus said that we live in our forgiveness from God as we are demonstrating and living in forgiveness to those who have wronged us. So Onesimus is indeed Paul's spiritual child who is growing in maturity in his discipleship. Now, in verse 3, or verse 11, Paul continues. We read this one last week too, but formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Uh, I mentioned last week how the name Onesimus is in Greek, in Greek literally translates to the word useless. So in other words, I, he was useless was useless to you, but now he is useful to you. Now, perhaps Onesimus had a work ethic problem. Perhaps he begrudged his, um, his bond servitude and he took that out being a bad laborer. Perhaps it was that he became very useless by leaving his master. Any of those could have been the case. I don't know. But what we do know is that whatever the case, he is now useful. He is useful and he has served Paul faithfully as his spiritual dad. Now, it's likely that Paul was taken care of by Onesimus in all the physical ways that would have been very important since Paul was enslaved or was in, in prison in chains in Rome. And as he is in his imprisonment, they wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to have access to clean clothes, food, parchment, any of the things that he needed to just do about his day in prison. Instead, you relied on friends and family to take care of you. So it's very likely that this is some of the practical ways that, he was, that Onesimus was taking care of him, of how he was discovered to be quite useful. But his overall his overall usefulness is not being oversold here at all. In fact, Paul would go into verse 12 and here's how he would write it. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. See, Onesimus was vital to Paul's mission. The way that the heart is vital to our breathing, our existence. So I'm sending my very heart to you. In other words, he is, and this is a theme that he goes back to over and over again. However you treat Onesimus is how you ultimately treat me. And however you would treat me, this is how you should treat Onesimus. So I'm, I'm sending back the most vulnerable part of me. That's something that's so vital. So I'm sending Onesimus to you. Do you receive that? Do you see that? So he is not overselling this at all. Now, Verses 13 and 14, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So here, Onesimus is discussed serving again, but do you notice the difference in his reason for serving? It's not because of his bondage to a person. It's because of his, he is now a faithful gospel partner. So Paul is explaining that he recognizes that through Philemon, that Philemon technically has a legal right in the Roman Empire over the life of Onesimus. So while Paul believes that he has, as he says before, a, has the spiritual authority to tell Philemon what to do, he is going to respect the law in this and allow Philemon to instead surrender his rights. So Paul appeals to him. That, and this is where it's going to get really good. 
Now, before we get there, I think it's, I mentioned this last week, but just to repeat, there are, there are some pretty significant differences between slavery and bond servitude in the ancient Roman world and the chattel-based African slave trade that happened in the United States. Um, I'm not going to go into all the distinctions of them, um, but on, it, and this is, this is personal conjecture, that I could not imagine that the Apostle Paul um, in the in the the terribleness of what happened in the United States and in other empires in the 17 and 1800s would have been something that Paul would have sent a slave back into. Now that's just conjecture, and if you want to have a one on one about that, we can have that conversation. But that is Danny personal conjecture. Okay, now because. With Philemon, there is clearly a lot of emphasis in the understanding of who Philemon is, that he has much care, that he has a lot of compassion, that he treats people with love. So hence why Paul is so certain that he will be received back well, which is where we're going to get into next. So verses 13 and 14. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your... I'm sorry. Verses 15. All right. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, but no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So let's imagine this for a moment. Let's imagine this for a moment, not from the perspective of Philemon, but from the perspective of Onesimus. The one who is useful is now, or useless is now useful. He has been discipled, brought up into spiritual maturity by Paul himself, and he's been equipped for effective gospel ministry. So Paul here is going to now give two brand new relational dynamics between Onesimus and Philemon. And the first that is mentioned right here is the concept of brotherhood in the family of God. So don't receive him back as a bond servant, but as your beloved brother in the family of God. Now, last week we talked about this from the perspective of Philemon. I mean, how insane would it be in, the, in this culture where an escaped slave would be subject to whatever punishment their master might desire to infringe upon them all the way up until death, that he would now receive Onesimus back, but not with any degree of punishment, but instead with open arms, receiving his slave, his legal slave, as his brother. That's crazy, right? But now imagine being Onesimus in this, in conversation with Paul for months leading up to this moment. Learning about peace from Paul, learning about reconciliation from Paul, learning about what the family of God is meant to be from Paul. Having conversations Conversations about what the risks might be if you were to return to Colossae. Talking about your future, wrestling with the implications of return. I mean, how do you reconcile with the one that you literally fled from? That's crazy, right? Corey Tin Boone continues her story. For I had to do it, I knew that. I mean, the message that God forgives is a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. You see, since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. 
Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness stayed. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will cannot fun- can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started my shoulder, raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. Now for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard, the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never have had difficulty in forgiving again. I wish I could say that. That's what she wrote. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on. They didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but I only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. And now she's gonna give another example of forgiveness. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and I trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't for weeks. I seethed inside, but at last I asked God to again work his miracle in me. And again, it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night hashing out the whole affair over again? My friends, I thought, people I loved. And if it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so much. I sat up, I switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it again. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly too. Never a hint of what they were planning. Father, help me. His help came in the form of a conversation with a pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless nights, um, two weeks of sleepless nights. Up in that church tower, he said, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if, but if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised that the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of that old bell slowing down. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. That's rough, right? That's weighty, right? And by the way, I would highly recommend both of Corey Tim Poon's books, um, Hiding Place and Tramp, of the, um, Tramp for the Lord. Both of them, like that little nugget, that's like one, one third of a chapter in her books. 
They're so good. But back to her story. At that moment, Corey had to decide, do I surrender my right to hold on to the grudge or do I extend radical forgiveness? I mean, who would possibly blame her for not? See, we don't, but Corey makes it clear that in her story that she doesn't give the credit to herself for the miracle of forgiveness. It's the spirit of God who's doing it. All she desired to do was demonstrate a willingness to the spirit of God to move in her in a, in a mighty way. Now, the difference between, a major difference between her story and the story of Philemon and Onesimus, there's a plenty of differences. But one of the biggest differences is that Corey's captor realized um, his need for forgiveness and reconciliation already. He had already begun the work of reconciliation. Now for Onesimus, he had clearly already made the decision to reconcile and to forgive before making the journey back to Colossae, before he even began the journey. And now after the long journey, here you sit, Onesimus watching the face of Philemon as Tychicus reads this letter aloud. You listen to the story. You're watching, waiting. How is Philemon going to respond? And you see, this is something that's so vitally important for us to realize and to consistently remember. We cannot control what others will do. We can rarely even truly control what we do, at least me. But we can surrender ourselves to the work of the Spirit of God to help us do what feels impossible on our own. Receive him as a brother. This this verse would inspire a line in the Christmas hymn, uh, O Holy Night. It's weird, right? But in it, what does it say? It says, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. That'll preach. Now these words, they were actually penned 10 years before the breakout of the civil war. And what it displayed is the costly peace that the gospel calls us into. The slave is our brother. Now that's crazy, right? Remember tonight though, we're not reading it from Philemon's perspective, but from Onesimus' perspective, from his cushion. It's not the slave is my brother. It's my master is my brother. See, the gospel offers an unrelenting call to reconcile the irreconcilable. And I know that because that's what Jesus has done with me. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you know the same to be true. That this is what the gospel is all about. Reconciling the irreconcilable. And yet this is what is happening. So relationally now, Philemon and Onesimus are brothers in the family of God. But they're not just brothers. This is what gets really cool. Verse 17. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would have received me. So we are partners. Paul, Philemon. Onesimus, treat him like you would receive me as partner. We were partners. We've been gospel ministry partners. Now receive him as your gospel ministry partner. Now, here's where this gets so crazy though. See, Onesimus, you are called to now see your former master as your co-labor in the work of the gospel. 
Now, the Greek word that's used here for partner, it's uh, the word kononia, and it's a type of partnership, but it is rooted not in suspicion, fear, or begrudging reluctance. It is rooted in relational trust and affection. It is a brotherly partnership. See, this is the type of relationship that they can now experience. Not because Philemon has earned it, not because Onesimus has earned it, but because Jesus has paid for it. A partnership rooted in brotherhood. The reality is Onesimus, Onesimus, there is no guarantee for how Philemon is going to react, right? I mean, maybe he's going to be pretty embarrassed that, this, that he's getting called out by Paul via letter in his own house amongst his friends. Not exactly, um, not exactly easy to hear, right? Maybe he's embarrassed that you came back at all. It's humiliating because he couldn't run his own house right or whatever. But as you cannot control his response, all you can do, as Paul would later write in one of his other letters, as far as it is up to you, live peaceably with everyone. And this is Onesimus deciding by, by virtue of his presence to live at peace with the person who he was owned by. He is seeking radical, reconcil- ra- radical reconciliation. See, Onesimus, you are ready for costly peace with this return. You are surrendered to the spirit of God for the results of what's about to happen. How much maturity in your discipleship with Jesus have you just shown by showing up tonight? If this is you, Onesimus, you went this long journey across the seas to come back and sit in this moment. What do you think the biblical community around you sees of the gospel by virtue of your presence here tonight? By virtue of you taking this first step towards forgiveness and reconciliation? See, what they are witnessing is the gospel on display through your radical obedience to the spirit of God. And again, Paul was very confident that he will receive him back well. So when he does receive you back, you are going to be a partner with Philemon. So imagine you are walking through the market with Philemon. What do you think all the other bond servants and slaves will think and see as they see you two walking together as brothers and as equals? Which, by the way, one third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves and bond servants at this time. So when you partner with Philemon in gospel ministry, what will, what will it tell the world about this Savior that you have surrendered your life to? What will it tell the world? What will it tell the church? What will they see? through your faithful gospel witness in this moment, you choosing to embark on the journey of reconciliation has said everything about the gospel. And Onesimus, you probably aren't even aware of this, but one day you're gonna be affirmed as the bishop, the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, a huge church, a vital church in the life of the early church. And you're gonna serve there all the way up until your death. I mean, how much does your obedience to the spirit in this moment, by demonstrating forgiveness and reconciliation in this moment, set a trajectory course into your future and into the eternity to come? It makes all the difference in the world. 
How much is God gonna use this moment to prepare you for what your future has? See, we, we misconstrue and we don't think about what God can do in the long term. We only know what we want him to do in the short term. But he uses the daily, the baby steps, the little acts of forgiveness, the little acts of reconciliation, the little things that we're doing every day to move closer towards Jesus. He uses those things to build us into men and women of maturity in the faith. But you see, the reality is that forgiveness is not easy and it's not a magic trick. There's no quick or painless solutions to it. It's costly. It takes time. It's a journey. I like how C.S. Lewis write it. He, say, he says, forgiveness is not forgetting to remember. It's remembering to forget. Now, I know the stories that I have had to endure, the, the ways that I have had to seek to forgive and seek to be forgiven. The ways that I've hurt those who I love and the way that I have been hurt by those I love. I don't know all of your stories tonight. I'm imagining some of them are pretty unforgivable. Irreconcilable. The truth is that each story is different and there's not like some one size fits all solution for how this all plays out. But will you listen to the unrelenting call of the gospel into something radical and not like, all right, guys, in a second, we're gonna take time and we're all gonna just forgive all at once, right? It's not about that. It's about going on the journey with God. It's about leaving yourself open for the moment that he has for you and the moments to come. Will you ask him about it? Will you talk to God about this one? Will you study the scriptures about this one? Will you ask him to give you the wisdom on what forgiveness looks like in your story? Will you reach out to wise counsel? Maybe it's somebody who disciples you to help you on this journey and help you process how to, how to follow through on this. See, I don't have a roadmap for each one of us, but I know that each of our journeys starts with the first step. So right now, I wanna go ahead and invite the band to come on up. See, this, this is not easy. It's, it's costly. Forgiveness is costly. Going back is costly. And that's what Jesus demonstrated on the cross when he hung up there and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And the same power, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to be able to say that is the same one who is in both the life of Onesimus and Philemon so that they could be reconciled. And it's that same power through the power of the Holy Spirit that would one day be in Corey Tin Boone if she could woodenly stretch out her arm to her Nazi captor. And it's that same power that you've probably forgiven somebody of some pretty gnarly stuff before. It's that same power that only comes from the Spirit of God that's helped you do it then and that can help you do it now and will help you do it when somebody else hurts you in some significant ways into the future. But it's not by our power. And it doesn't come with shame or guilt or condemnation. It comes with a call into deeper waters. It comes with a call to see the gospel on display. And it comes as we just say, Lord, come. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. 
even when sometimes the brutality of what is forgiven in the gospel seems to outweigh the beauty. At least it does in my mind and in my heart. So Father, I'm reminded of the simple comment that was made to Jesus. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, when we are living in unbelief and our unforgiveness, when we are fumbling our hand in our pocket rather than reaching out our hand to be reconciled. Lord, when we think that we have gone too far to be reconciled back to you, I pray that you would remind us that the same way that we have never gone too far, others can't go too far with us. But that instead you would use us in ways that in ways that are appropriate, in ways that are helpful, in ways that would be freeing to our souls and release the chains that we have been carrying on others. So Father, I pray that in the days and weeks ahead, that Lord, you would, that you would, by the power of your spirit, be revealing spaces of unforgiveness in us that we would seek forgiveness in whatever way that looks like, not in cheap ways, but in ways that take heed of good counsel, in ways that are intentional, in ways that do not lead to our condemnation or the other, but in ways that would set us free and them. Lord, I pray for those of us that even just this concept, this topic, it's just too much. And for those of us that are in that space, Lord, I pray just that your grace would rest upon hearts. Lord, that the challenge to forgive would only be seen in light of the incredible weight of your forgiveness towards us. So Lord, we need you. We need you more than we know, and we definitely need you in this space tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.